everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. If we ever lead with impact and the artisan story, it doesn't resonate as well as telling the product story. And so we continue to test and we continue to iterate how we're communicating that because obviously impact is super important to us. It's baked into our business model. It's why we started, but the product is what makes it sustainable. There are a lot of twists and turns in Joe Demon's journey to founding Yellowleaf Hammocks. It opens with a childhood refugee turned successful real estate developer, then twists into a story of entrepreneurship and an appearance on Shark Tank. And then it turns again when a request for $400,000 became a $1 million investment. Through it all, Joe was guided by a singular idea to build a business that could actually have a measurable, sustainable, positive impact on people. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Joe guides us through his quest to make Yellowleaf a success. Tucked within this incredible story are some critical bits of knowledge about running a successful e-commerce shop, including the challenges of selling on Amazon and the ways to optimize your Amazon strategy, plus some of the pitfalls to watch out for if you decide to pursue a path in retail. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. This is Stephanie Postles from Mission.org. And today we have Joe Demon on the show, the founder and chief relaxation officer of Yellow Leaf Hammocks. Joe, how's it going? Going really well. So your title, I don't think I've ever had anyone on the show with the title of chief relaxation officer. I was very excited when I saw that. You know, we're, we're laid back, so um, we can't take our titles too seriously. So when I was looking over... Um, a little bit about you. You have a very interesting background. And I was hoping you could kind of start from the beginning, actually, which I don't ask from mm-hmm. a lot of my guests. But I mean, I want you to go way back, like age five. Yeah, wow. and tell me a little <laughs> bit about your journey to where you're at now. Yeah, that's I mean, um, I appreciate the question. And uh, definitely, um, I think a lot of what I'm doing now is sprouted from, you know, my background. So I, I came to the U.S. when I was five as a uh, Jewish refugee from the former Soviet Union um, and was kind of had, I guess, um, natural hustle built in um, just from my experience growing up in kind of a rougher part of Boston and just worked my way up through to college. And I, I would say on a track to do something entrepreneurial. Um, and early on in college, I fell in love with real estate development um, for various reasons. We can probably have a whole separate podcast on that, but ended up getting a really amazing job, like a dream job, and uh, where I got to lead a lot of 
um, high profile development pro projects. And through that experience, I guess that was my first foray into uh, fusing um, positive impact with uh, making money in business. Uh, this is around the time where green building was just starting to kind of become a more of a mainstream topic. And um, as one of the younger people at the firm, um, I spearheaded uh, efforts to kind of reposition the firm as the leader in green building and sustainable development. Um, and part of that philosophy that I, that I had early on was this realization that we can actually increase profitability um, by making things that were building things that were better, more sustainable, that had a better health you know, impact, um, creating healthier communities and so forth. Um, it, was, it was definitely driven by, you know, wanting to do good, but also realizing that you can do good and have a profitable enterprise. And as 2016, sorry, 2006 came around, the recession uh, started and real estate was really the first. And I was just a few, like I graduated in 2006. And so, um, you know, I lasted a couple of years through the recession. Um, and ended up yep. taking a job more of an uh, institutional finance position, um, but focusing on affordable housing. And it's similar philosophy there, where um, if you roll up your sleeves, you can actually uh, take on um, a part of the sector that um, wasn't necessarily as sexy, but also had real impact on people. And again, keeping on profitability. And around this whole time of being in real estate, I was starting to get exposed to other entrepreneurs, kind of more in the consumer product space, who were uh, some of the like, early pioneers in um, sustainable uh, agriculture and uh, fashion, those types of areas. And they were doing it in ways that were really impactful. And so I caught that bug and had uh, no idea what I was going to do next, but real estate was kind of not the place to be at the time. And, and I was basically planning to go to business school. Um, and right before going and applying for business school, I saved up all my vacation days and uh, ended up going to visit a good friend in Thailand who was living abroad uh, with four of my other close friends from growing up. And it was on that trip where the idea for Yellowleaf uh, came to be, um, but it was all, it all kind of transpired um, on that trip, but driven by this experience that I had and um, exposure that I had to um, other social entrepreneurs. Very cool. So what happened in Thailand where you were like, aha, I need to start Yellow Leaf. Like, well, what did that look like? How did you, you know, find the hammock? What was the story behind that? So I was originally on kind of a remote island and reading um, a local guidebook, um, trying to figure out like what to do with my day. We're sitting on the beach one morning and in this book, there was a story. It was a basically said there's a little shop on the other end of the island uh, in the old part of the island. And uh, in the shop, there's a map that they give out for free that's like a locals only knowledge type of thing where it'll tell you like the secret waterfall and, you know, the secret beach. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I got to go check this out. So I hopped on my motorbike, zipped through to the other end of the island and ended up uh, getting to the shop and it was closed. So I was pretty exhausted by the time I got there. I sat down, someone came and opened the shop and I asked for the map. And then I also noticed that there was just a plethora of hammocks that were beautiful. And um, I immediately jumped in. I had loved hammocks before this, never thinking that I would be in the hammock business. But um, I jumped in and was immediately struck by how soft the yarn was, the intricate weave. Um, and I started asking questions about this hammock, thinking that I would buy some and bring them home. 
And I was told the story of the Moabri tribe and an aid worker who was working with this tribe and how literally through hammock weaving, they had gone from being on the brink of ex extinction as a, as a culture um, and they were trapped in um, indentured servitude and through hammock weaving, they were able to provide enough income in their community where they were able to um, self-sustain themselves and, and build a path out of poverty or were on track to do that. And they had, uh, you know, the impact that they were creating for themselves that was driven by themselves and not an outside aid organization was really interesting to me. Um, I had been familiar with like the kind of the Tom shoes model, um, you know, the, the handout approach to creating impact. And so this struck me as something really different. Uh, and I learned that these hammocks were not sold really anywhere else outside of a few places in Thailand. And so a week later, that story of this community and what they were doing and the hammocks really stuck with me. And I contacted the shop and I asked if I can go visit and they connected me with the village. And long story short, I uh, convinced the cab driver to drive me 600 miles to the village. Um, and I went there and I got to meet the, the women making the hammocks and, and, um, you know, spend a whole day in the community. And I learned that people would hike as far away as the Loatian border to this village because they heard how much money they could earn, how well they could be treated. Uh, and they were being turned away because there just weren't enough sales. And immediately I was like, well, these, this is a great product. Like naively, I was like, oh, I can sell some hammocks. We can provide enough like work in this community. And they, I came home with a backpack stuffed full of hammocks and all this energy and excitement. Uh, threw them down on the bed when I got home and uh, with my uh, now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time we were living together and um, told her about, you know, my experience and kind of all just, you know, snowballed from there. And I basically decided not to go to business school and, and start doing this on the side uh, and slow and diving into it and, you know, um, slowly getting to where we are today. Very cool. Yeah. That's such an amazing story. Where are you guys today? How many hammocks are you selling? Oh God, we are, um, well, we have over 200 trained uh, weavers. Um, we started with about eight women when we first decided to uh, do this full time. So we've grown quite a bit um, in terms of like annual units. I mean, tens of thousands uh, that we've sold and we're actually growing a ton right now. And, um, but yeah, it's definitely a very uh, sustainable business that's, um, we're kind of past uh, the, um, ideation stage and, and, and more into growth right now. So for sure. Yeah. And I love that idea of giving jobs and actually, like you said, developing a market, a bigger market and providing an opportunity instead of just, you know, giving things to someone, yeah. because I do think that's a much more sustainable path and, uh, one that I'm always very interested in. How has it changed though, from when, you know, just a few women making these hammocks, like what does it look like now with all these weavers? Are you ingrained in the training process? Like, how do you keep up uh, product quality? It seems like there's so many questions when you're working with a village in Thailand. Oh my God. Yeah. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> there's a lot um, <laughs> that we've learned. And I think we've built a, um, a really, uh, hopefully a model that others can replicate um, for the artisan sector. When I first came back from Thailand, my co-founder Rachel's idea was that we needed to test the market and see if other people thought these hammocks were as great as I thought and that I wasn't just crazy. And that proved to be a really valuable uh, process that we went through where we started selling hammocks at local markets and different, you know, fairs around New England where we were at the time. And we didn't share the impact story. Um, we just tried to sell the product and we led with product first. 
And through that experience, we gained a lot of feedback around um, design and being really design focused. And so one of the first things we did uh, as we were starting to really grow was update a lot of the, the aesthetic to be more on trend with color and pattern and things like that. Uh, upgraded materials so they were really built for um, the outdoor use, like outdoor use and using performance materials. And so um, as we were introducing these things, um, we, you know, our, our weavers were really uh, receptive to that um, and we really engaged them in the process. But some of the things we've done as we've continued to grow and looking at like, how do we create more impact? Um, layering in, like we've built a financial literacy program. Um, we have this amazing partnership with Kiva.org where we're able to provide zero interest, uh, flexible loans to our weavers. Um, and thinking about kind of how do we provide, you know, uh, additional support or bring in um, partners that can provide additional support in the communities to make it truly sustainable because um, the first step is giving somebody an opportunity to earn a really uh, a great living wage and helping people evolve to the middle class. But then, you know, it's kind of thinking about that next step. Um, and so we've done some work around that and really, you know, focusing on quality control from the beginning as well has been super important for us. That's amazing. So how do you manage inventory levels? I saw you were on Shark Tank, which I'd love to hear the story behind that. But it also made me be like, oh my gosh, when you're on Shark Tank, I'm sure you got a million orders. Like, how do these weavers keep up? So maybe first, if I can hear a bit about the Shark Tank story and what that is like, and then move on to how you manage inventory from that surplus of sales I'm sure you got. Yeah. Yeah. Shark Tank was um, quite the experience for us. Um, I think we have a, like a, a, an ideal product to um, showcase on Shark Tank, um, especially during today's times where people are spending more time at home. And um, But for us, going on Shark Tank was really, it, it's catapulted us, uh, like truly. Um, we First off, we've had our first infusion of capital. I guess I can give away what happened. Um, we received a million-dollar investment from one of the guest sharks, Daniel Levetsky, who's the finder, founder of Kind uh, Snacks. So he's a very mission-driven investor. Um, who has a similar track record as us in terms of like rolling up his sleeves and, and taking, you know, 10 years to build what he's built. And so he's been through the trenches. Um, but our experience in Shark Tank um, was, uh, I mean, it was, it was uh, since Shark Tank, we've definitely seen a huge uptick in sales and we've been able to put some systems in place to really shift our business towards more of a direct to consumer model. Um, and, you know, it's only been like a month and a half since we were on the show. So we're just, we're still living through a lot of the chaos that comes after you're on the show. Mm -hmm. So what kind of unexpected chaos came? Because I'm sure you're like, oh, we're for sure going to get, you know, more sales. But what things happened or what surprising things happened after you're on the show or maybe during the show? Well, we honestly had no idea what to expect. We, we talked to some other entrepreneurs that have been on the show and have learned that it's different for everyone and depends on you know, what's going on in the world at the time that your episode airs. Um, you know, I talked to one person who was on uh, the show during a massive snowstorm and people were at home watching and he had a product that really fit um, the times. And so he did really well. And I talked to other people who were like, hey, it was okay. So we just had no idea. And then going into this, um, also, um, you know, we're going through such a crazy time where we just didn't know if people are, um, how, how bad people are impacted economically. Um, and so we didn't know what to, how to prepare inventory wise. We didn't want to 
overinvest in inventory. That's been something we've really um, tried to hold in on, hone in on and, and not hold inventory too long, you know, have some of those kind of basic mm-hmm. business principles baked in. But we've seen like, uh, you know, sales have far exceeded our expectations. Um, and it's kind of broke a lot of the systems that we've had um, and created a lot of inefficiency now as we're trying to catch up. And kind of going back to your question around the supply chain, on the one hand, it's been a challenge, but we've also um, been able to catch up pretty quickly. And I think having a vertically integrated supply chain like we do um, and really great relationships with our um, weavers is, is what's allowed us to um, not, lose, not lose out on, you know, we're not leaving too many sales on the table and trying to take advantage of um, everything that's going on, you know, keeping our foot on the gas. But just the uptick in order volume within a short amount of time and sustained order volume has been something that's new to us. And so it's been, uh, it's been a fun challenge to work on. Yeah, that's amazing. Congratulations. Getting a million dollars from Shark Tank is awesome. And you went in only asking for 400,000. Yeah. Yeah. They they have a great clip at the end where Kevin O'Leary goes, it's never happened before in Shark Tank where someone comes in for 400,000 and get (laughs) comes out with a million. And honestly, we had no intention of raising a million dollars. Uh, on Shark Tank. Like, I think, um, yeah, we're still kind of like, did that just happen? <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> did it hit your bank account like pretty instantly or was there a whole process behind it? There was definitely a whole process. You know, you go through due diligence after it's more of a handshake agreement on the, on the show. And so, yep. um, we, we ended up closing, uh, and it, um, and then went to work afterwards, just preparing to be on the show making sure that kind of everything was in place for us to have a successful airing. Um, And this is before COVID existed. So we um, did not anticipate, you know, what the world would look like um, when the episode actually aired. But, um, but it was great to see, uh, it's great to see some money in our account for the first time and actually be able to think a little more strategically. Um, So Mm -hmm. definitely a different business today. So, what was the first thing that you invested in after that cash hit? Did you have a plan for it or what did that look like? So we knew we needed to um, kind of build our marketing engine. Um, prior to getting investment, we were uh, very bootstrapped. You know, we um, would reinvest all our profit and it was, we were always getting pulled in a lot of different directions. And for once we can actually focus in on updating our website um, and really making sure we're telling our story um, and being a little more deliberate in the communications through our website. Um, and so that was, you know, that was a, you know, several months of a project and um, also focusing more on uh, product development. Um, we've got this new product called the Hammock Throne, which is kind of in a category of its own. Um, and I need to throw because yeah. <laughs> I, I consider myself a queen. So, <laughs> yeah. I like that. So putting money towards that and making sure that we're positioned for kind of this next phase of growth um, with product development and a really good e-commerce experience was the the first two things. Um, And, you know, we're continuing to reinvest into those areas right now. Very cool. Do you ever test with the messaging on your website? And if so, what kind of testing do you do and what do you see works best to tell the story? Yeah, we've done some, some light testing. Um, the one thing we've we've tested the most, I would say, is how we message the the product and the impact. Um, and uh, you know, it's kind of always odd to us when we 
lead with, if we ever lead with um, impact and um, the artisan story, it doesn't resonate as well as telling the product story. Um, and so we, we've continued to test that and we continue to iterate how we're communicating that because obviously impact is super important to us. Um, it's baked into our business model. It's why we started, but the product is what makes it sustainable. And so we're trying to really uh, weave that into the storytelling more, but um, that's one thing we've, you know, every time we test it, it, it you know, product story always wins. Um, but we're starting to really get that figure, striking a chord with more about how we tell the impact and how the, the impact story really contributes to making the product uh, superior um, and how it, you know, what the benefit is to, you know, our customers. Yep. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I did go on your about page and I was watching more of the story of the weavers mm-hmm. and I couldn't stop watching. It was like one of those addicting memes or videos uh, where you're like mm-hmm. watching someone like knit something and I'm like, oh, I can't look away. That's a really good video. Thank you. Yeah, we're it's and that's kind of how we're now figuring out how to really tell that impact story of like showing how it's made, um, showing the people that are making it. Um, Every hammock is also signed uh, on the label by the woman who made it. Um, And so we really want to connect customers to, you know, there are real people that are so enthusiastic about every single sale that we get. It's it's just like uh, it's awesome. And we want to connect our customers with our um, weavers. And so that video was something that we, it took us a while to get, you know, again, just not having raised money up until recently. Um, everything kind of came naturally and organically and over time. But those are things that we, we've tested out and seen how once we're able to show how it's made, that really, um, that's one of our advantages. You know, a lot of products are just kind of made in a I guess more of a boring way. I'm not sure, but just not in the same environment. Mm -hmm. And so there's this beautiful craftsmanship um, that we want to showcase. Yep. Yeah. I probably would not watch how my office chair was made, (laughs) but yeah, that one I could not look away from. Although I, I did just get back from an office chair factory as we were figuring out the (laughs) hammock throw. And that was, uh, you know, I I do think that's, what were you doing? there? um, We were sourcing (laughs) components for the hammock throne because we're getting into furniture. And so, and I think that just showing how, things are made is, is like, should be done more. I think it creates more transparency um, and connects people to where things are coming from, which is important for sustainability and, um, you know, just awareness around, around that's important. So um, yeah, I, I would challenge that and say even office, the way office chairs are made, at least maybe I'm just a, a geek around, you know, manufacturing and production, but I think it's, um, there's some, I, I don't know. I just, I saw some cool things that I thought other people would be interested in. Well, if you take a good video, I will be open to watching it and <laughs> seeing if it's as enticing as watching someone weave a hammock together. Um, so when it comes to new products, you're just mentioning that you guys are looking into getting into new products. But one thing I saw on your site was that you could actually build a custom hammock. Mm-hmm. And it made me just kind of think about like, how did you decide that you would allow consumers to build a custom hammock? And how does that get to the weavers? Because it seems like it would be easier just to have like, here's our three products. And this is what the weavers know how to do. And this is all you can order. What was that thought process like allowing a customer to create their own? Yeah, we, um, we had a lot of debate around whether or not we wanted to pursue that because it does add um, extra work for us. Um, you know, we, we figured out what would be the premium cost. I think it's a $50 premium to make a custom hammock. Um, and but the process has been, uh, has evolved over time and we're getting more towards a tech oriented solution kind of in this next iteration, but 
Um, we there's a design guide that kind of we we share out with customers. Right now, it's pretty manual. You order the custom hammock. We then email you a design guide, a PDF that you fill out. So you can't actually see the hammock, um, uh-huh. but we have a lot of examples in that design guide, and you can see the different colors, and, it, and it's worked really well. Um, but what, what kind of inspired us to do that was more uh, around just realizing we have the ability. Um, we're also, um, we have a very design-oriented uh, customer, or at least one segment of our customers that are very, you know, kind of in that interior design. Um, we also were previously, we did a lot of collaborations with companies like Anthropology. We made all the hammocks for Tommy Bahama and other brands. And realizing that they wanted something unique um, to them and limited edition collections and things like that, and that we had the ability to do that, we realized maybe individual customers also have that preference um, and to make something that really fits their space as they're designing you know, that area in their home or backyard. Um, and so we tested it out and we got a pretty good response and um, realized it was something we can do. It's allowed us to you know, differentiate as well, but also just another uh, way to add value to people. And, and I think there's this broader trend around customization and, and less mass market products and, and things that really um, kind of represent your personality and your style and things like that. So we really leaned towards that and um, wanted to empower our customers to be able to do that. Yeah, that's awesome. So are you guys in retail or are you only doing direct to consumer? When we first started the business, we we basically were trying to get any sale we can get. You know, it was that bootstrap approach, um, just hit profitability as quickly as possible. weren't really deliberate about where our sales were coming from. Didn't have the resources for uh, one strategy or the other. And as we grew and started reinvesting, and we became a little more strategic, and we focused on um, our business was at, at you know a year ago it was probably fifty fifty between um, retail partnerships and uh, e commerce. Um, and we, uh, we've, we've obviously started shifting heavily towards direct to consumer, um, with stores being shut down, but other reasons as well. I think we were going in that direction anyway, um, of being more direct to consumer. So, and we're the other thing that we're focusing on kind of thinking about more long-term is I, I don't think we're going to not sell into retail. Um, we're just going to be more strategic around who we work with um, and making sure that our story is really told well, the product's showcased well. It's definitely a hard product to merchandise. So, um, and it's an easier story to tell on the internet, you know, with video, like you mentioned, and um, and being able to really focus more on storytelling, which is a, a big part of, um, you know, our brand. Yeah, that makes sense. What kind of issues did you run into when you were going into retail outside of COVID and everything, but what problems did you encounter? The... Um, well, taking up space on store shelves, packaging, we didn't really have retail ready packaging. And so going through a, a couple iterations of different uh, displays, things like that, just it pulled us, uh, you know, it took so much time to develop. Um, also, payment terms aren't flexible with most retailers, mm-hmm. um, you know, things like that. You know, we, we pay our weavers uh, immediately upon completion of the hammocks um, and, and some in advance. And so just the whole retail uh, business model wasn't really friendly for our our model. And um, we constantly were up against, you know, having to negotiate for better terms, having to figure out how to display the product in a store. Um, and it's always just been so much easier to do it online. Yep. So 
Earlier, you mentioned that when you started getting more orders, a bunch of things broke. What kind of things started breaking first? And how did you go about fixing them? Or are there any best practices where you're like, well, when you have this happen, like we saw this worked and this didn't? On the supply chain side, a lot of the efficiency that we had created just broke in the sense of, so when we were first uh, building up and scaling, uh, we, we, we start when we first were working with eight women and we were able to really go to someone's house and, you know, collect hammocks. And it was very uh, manual and kind of individual. As we grew to 200 weavers, we created a little bit more of a schedule around when, um, we would drop off yarn, kind of created a central location, um, and standardize some of the things around collecting hammocks and, and payments. After the Shark Take appearance, our sales, you know, we, we far exceeded what we expected to sell. And so uh, we ended up going on back order um, and still working through a lot of that right now as we speak uh, and ended up having to go, you know, door to door again, you know, kind of completely lost all the efficiencies that we had just trying to get the hammocks to, the, to customers as quickly as possible. We started drop shipping directly from the communities where they're made in Thailand, direct to customers' homes. Um, and so a lot of the efficiencies just kind of broke down. And it's, you know, that those things are compounded as you continue to stay on back order. And so that's one thing. The other is that we, um, when we relaunched our website in the beginning, like uh, right before we went on Shark Tank, you know, we had all these uh, plans to continue innovating, testing. Um, and a lot of those plans just kind of fell by the wayside because we were putting out so many fires around being on back order, trying to get more yarn. Um, there's so many challenges right now with global logistics, kind of getting hit from a lot of angles. Yep. Do you see the industry evolving around logistics in the future? Because it seems like so many brands were maybe dependent on one location or, you know, these couple factories or something. And if, if they're down for the count, you're kind of, you know, in a pinch. How do you see things evolving in that part of the business going forward? Yeah, that's a really interesting thought um, to try to you know, predict what will happen. But I, I definitely think, um, you know, a lot of brands are reliant on just one uh, manufacturer. And, and there's, you know, there's reasons to maybe kind of figure out other backup solutions. I think we'll definitely start seeing that. It's definitely wise to not just be fully dependent on one um, supplier. Um, but it's going to be really tricky because, I, you know, in the U.S., we're just not set up to manufacture a lot of things that, you know, people buy here. And so um, it's not like it's going to be a sudden shift to, you know, bring manufacturing back. Um, yep. And globalization, I, I personally, I feel like has um, had a positive impact on um, prices of products for people and accessibility to different things. But um, we're kind of retracting a little bit. So, I don't know. I'm definitely closely watching it and thinking about, you know, how do we, um, how do, you know, how do we look at different yarn suppliers and raw materials and, and maybe um, have more options just in case. But, you know, I think we're also inclined to not uh, create a problem uh, and just kind of stick with the status quo. I think a lot of businesses are that, that way. So it's a little bit of a balance of putting some resources towards planning for a worst case and also, keeping your foot on the gas and, and, you know, keeping up with what's actually working now, but um, things will certainly be changing in the coming year. Yeah. So with everything going on and all the chaos that you just mentioned, have you been able to focus on your content and marketing strategy? 
And if so, what does that look like for you all? Yeah, we've been um, definitely trying to scale up our content strategy. And one, um, it's it's a little too early f- for us to report anything significant, but one of our, uh, like, an area that I think we've uh, done really well in is um, having a lot of user-generated content. And, like, if you look at our website, most of the photos on there are actually taken by our customers. This is might might have been a benefit of being bootstrapped and that we didn't have the resources to do a lot of these, like, full-on photo shoots that bigger brands have been able to do. And um, that that's allowed us to have, like, real people in our products and to be able to show that to our customers um, kind of creating that relatability. And we're definitely wanting to continue that. And we're looking, we're hiring now, trying to build out the content arm of of Yellowleaf more and focusing more around uh, what a hammock represents in your life and relaxation and really um, shifting our mission a little bit more towards um, making relaxation a daily ritual in your your life. Um, And so focusing our content strategy more towards that so being a little bit more deliberate around our uh, photography too and, and really um, showing the product in different places and how to use it. It's, it's a little bit of a technical product in terms of how do you set it up, where do you place it. Um, and so going forward, we're really focusing on, on being able to um, create content that uh, showcases and answers a lot of those questions. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a good move. I also saw on the reviews, people were able to select where they place their hammock. And I thought that was so important because then you can be like, oh, she's kind of like me. And she put it in her backyard Mm -hmm. or they put it in their kid's room. And it just kind of helped you visualize, okay, it must not be that hard if a bunch of people are able to do it. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's where the kind of the user generated photos that we, we have come come into play. Um, we also included, um, a 12 page hammocking 101 guidebook with every purchase. So it has a lot of uh, resources on how to hang it, where to hang it. Uh, Everybody, you know, sets it up a little bit differently. Um, And so as we look ahead, you know, developing products that allow you to really be able to hang a hammock anywhere um, is more uh, kind of our focus going forward. I think we've, we've done really well with kind of perfecting the woven hammock and now uh, making sure that we can increase the amount of hammocks we can sell and the amount of, you know, the way people can use hammocks and, and making it a more integral part of our culture in the U S. Um, and so that's the biggest focus, biggest focus for us um, in this next phase of kind of solving that how to hang problem. So when it comes to you're mentioning UGC earlier, how do you encourage your customers to post those images? Well, I think for us, we're fortunate in that it's the type of product that, people like to uh, brag about. Um, so we definitely see a lot of, you know, people are excited to use it. And so they're like, hey, take a photo of me and they share it. Um, and we try to really monitor social channels. Um, you know, we don't, I wouldn't say we have a you know, massive audience compared to others yet. You know, it's growing right now, but um, we try to really connect with people individually and, and have them, you know, share those photos with us directly so we can reuse them. And just engaging with people like one-on-one um, has, has helped. Um, and then, you know, more people see others sharing it and they share. And so it just kind of builds on itself. Um, obviously we send out the post-purchase review requests um, at, and you know, anytime we communicate with customers, we're always like, Oh, we'd love to see your photos. And, you know, it makes our day to see that. And I think 
um, they're excited to share. And so we try to keep that momentum going post-purchase. That's great. So for a product that's pretty durable, probably going to last many years, what's your idea around increasing the lifetime value of a customer? Like, how do you bring them back? Are you trying to get them to buy more than one product or what does that strategy look like? Yeah, with hammocks, it's obviously, um, you would think a one-time purchase. And we were uh, really surprised with our findings once we started really looking at the numbers behind our sales. And for us, it's about, you know, just under 20% repurchase rate within first year of purchase. For, and so we were just shocked that for a hammock that we were seeing that. Um, and what we learned was that this was such a great gift for people. And, and we started um, communicating that more once we discovered that so many people were um, gifting hammocks to, you know, a new, if someone, you know, a friend buys a new home, get him a hammock. That's a great wedding gift. It's, it's unique. It's different. And so um, we've, we've started really um, showcasing a lot of that gift giving more. And so that's helped with the, um, you know, repeat sale, but that aside, we're also looking at, you know, how do we add more products? How do we build up this, that space in your backyard that complements the hammock? So, you know, you buy a hammock, but there's other things. What else are you buying to create that space? Um, and thinking about um, building a more, more of a robust, you know, home and backyard brand centered around the idea of creating that relaxation space. Um, and so what can we do to um, add more value there? Um, that's kind of the product philosophy is more around hammock inspired products, I guess. So earlier you were talking about, you know, creating different messaging around re relaxation or gift giving and things like that. What kind of marketing channels are you seeing success with? I would say um, right now, definitely, you know, the kind of the basics of being on Facebook and Instagram, uh, especially for a, a very visual product like ours is great. Um, it, it's, we see a lot of success there and we really tried to focus in on those early in the earlier days when we were starting to really focus more on digital marketing, we cast, cast a little bit of a wider net. Um, we found Google to be really expensive, um, really competitive, um, and narrowed it down to let's really figure out Facebook and Instagram before we start branching out elsewhere. Um, and so that's what we're kind of our key focus right now. And, and, um, we're also seeing with a lot of bigger brands moving off of Facebook right now, um, with things happening, you know, politically, we're seeing prices come down a little bit. So, um, yep. you know, as a smaller brand, it's, it's honestly benefiting us. And so, you know, we're trying to take advantage of that um, to be totally transparent. Oh yeah. We've had a lot of brands, smaller brands say that as well. So you're not. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's great. I mean, I think there's all, things are always shifting. Um, you know, the more people jump on a particular marketing channel, the costs increase. So you have to be really nimble. Um, and for us, this is also new. Um, we're also focusing more on Amazon these days. Um, and so I would say that's another really, it's been a great sales channel for us too. What was that process or what does it look like selling on Amazon versus D2C? Like what kind of things do you encounter while selling through their platform? Definitely very different. You lose a lot of control. Um, you're constantly, uh, there's, you know, Amazon's broken up and broken up between seller central and vendor central and, and seller central, you warehouse the product on your own either in your warehouse or put it in Amazon's warehouse so that you can offer prime shipping if you do that. 
Um, but you have more control on that end. And on Vendor Central, they purchase direct from you and own the inventory. And therefore, mm -hmm. their algorithm um, prices your product. And so if you have a minimum asking price, uh, map pricing like we do, we never really discount our products. And so um, you're constantly having to monitor and, and make sure that, um, you know, the products represented the way you want it, which is really challenging. And, uh, but at the same time, so many people are shopping on Amazon. And I think, you know, when we were first starting to shift more towards direct to consumer, we kind of had a little bit of pride around thinking, Oh, we're just going to be on our own website and, and some select retail channels. And really like, I, you know, again, I don't think that's wise. I think, um, you want to be where your customers are, um, particularly for your category. And for hammocks, um, we had an opportunity to really stand out on Amazon because it's, it's such a commoditized category. And so we definitely, yeah, we made this d decision and um, it's been, it's worked out well for us, but um, there's definitely challenges around being in control of how your product is showcased and there's less customization and, and so forth. But um, a lot of people are sure. How do you stand out on Amazon? you can pay a little bit of money to be able to kind of create your page. Um, I think it's called a plus pages. Um, and really, you know, you're still working with their, um, templated, uh, sections, but really kind of focusing in on like, what are the core things you want to showcase? And, you know, you kind of have to stick within those walls, but trying to make that section mirror our website as much as possible. And, um, and just having good uh, customer service on Amazon as well um, is important. And um, but that's you know you, you do you do lose a lot of that control when you're selling on Amazon, especially if you have such a kind of you're trying to build a brand and not just another kind of a trinket type product. So, but again, because if people are especially already aware of your brand, like for us, we saw after Shark Tank, people would go to our website, but also people would check Amazon just because Amazon has such a strong reputation for quick delivery. Um, easy returns. Um, and so why compete against Amazon when you could, you know, be on there and um, increase your sales, you know, reach more customers. Yeah, that makes sense. So how do you build? I mean, we've had a lot of our, we do a survey for some of our listeners and many people ask about selling on Amazon. So what kind of optimizations do you do to your page or are you experimenting with where you're like, this is working really well, or, you know, make sure you pay attention to this part. What kind of things are you looking um, at when it comes to creating a different page that gets found and, you know, it's enticing and still tells your product story and the background and all that? We're still learning a lot. So but one thing that's worked for us was to move all of our products under a single page. So you can click through the different SKUs all in one page. And for a while, we thought that would, would be a, uh, a bad thing to do because if you're searching for a particular product and you only see one design, you might not click on it. And we found that to not be true. Um, once you click on, you actually land on the product page, you can click through the different designs. Um, and so keeping people all on one page, uh, and I guess you can apply this to your, your website as well. Um, and Amazon obviously tests these things and we kind of started just following whatever their best practices are. And uh, it also allows you to have all the reviews for all of the products on all on that one page versus broken out across, you know, 30 plus SKUs. I mean, generally we just try to follow their best practices and, and take their uh, um, advice on, you know, how to set your page up and, and kind of just stick to the basics and, you know, good photography obviously is a given too. So that's been important. Yeah. 
that's a, a previous guest also mentioned that kind of like let the algorithm do its job mm -hmm. or like you said let amazon tell you best practices because he was just saying that a lot of people try and just you know do something different because they think they know more or you know and instead it's like stick with what works and what the brand is telling you what works mm -hmm. and see how that goes first. yeah so, yeah yeah that that's good so earlier you were mentioning your website is there any new tools or technologies that you're playing around with right now um, that you're seeing, you know, help conversions or uh, maybe before you were seeing cart abandonment and now you're not, or, you know, you're dropping off track, like traffic from the homepage and now you're not anymore. Anything that you've had success with on your website? For us, having the live chat functionality um, is really great. And the, rather than having something that pops up and, and is in your face right away, um, just having a subtle kind of like, message in a corner that you can click on and you can ask questions. And if we're on, you can chat with somebody right away. Um, oftentimes it's been turned off lately just because we've, um, we're still have a pretty small team. Um, but you can, instead of going to a contact us page, having that there, we learned that for our customers, that was really important. Um, a lot of people have questions uh, before purchasing. And so uh, making that readily available without a way that's uh, super intrusive to their site browsability and then having a, a, a pop-up with really good messaging around um, like what's the value to you to sign up um, to our newsletter uh, and not just trying to throw another discount in your face because again for us that's that's we we don't we're not able to really discount heavily um, and so those two things have been probably the, the greatest for us um, but we're continuing to develop our site more and add a little more functionality and features but yeah, we're just kind of, again, sticking to what works um, and following, you know, we oftentimes look at maybe what other brands are doing and, and gain, you know, get inspiration from, the, from them. Um, you know, if you're small like us, what we've learned is that there's no point in reinventing the wheel um, and bigger companies like Amazon and other, you know, uh, e-commerce companies that are, that have huge markets that are testing things constantly, you can really learn a lot by looking at what they're doing. And so, um, yeah, we're testing on our own, but also taking, you know, cue from, from others. Well, that's a good question then. What kind of other brands are you looking at? Like what e-commerce companies do you keep an eye on? Definitely like some of the big marketplaces like Amazon and Wayfair, um, very different from our website and, you know, they're, they're more of a marketplace, but just how they, what their experience like is like for customers is great. Um, actually another company that I, I, uh, we look at it, our category specifically, um, uh, the inside who I, I think was on your uh, podcast, oh, yeah. like they do an amazing job. Yep. Um, looked at, uh, we were looking at a lot of furniture and, you know, uh, direct to consumer brands, um, who are also selling products that, you know, um, require a lot of thought before purchase, um, and how they're communicating, uh, some of the, you know, the questions that people have when they're shopping for their home, um, like parachute home, uh, Floyd for another furniture company. Um, and also I would say some of the like early pioneers and direct to consumer brands like Warby Parker, um, away travel who's done a really great job. Um, and so, yeah, looking at kind of the companies that have been able to raise a ton of money, grow super fast, build those departments out. Um, you know, what are they doing and how can we tailor some of those best practices towards our, you know, our own, um, business um, has helped. Cool. Yeah, I love that. Then we can move right into lightning round brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. 
So this is where I ask you a question and you have one minute or less to answer. All right. Are you ready? Let's Joe? do it. All right. What's up next on your reading list? Ooh, um, I am really looking forward to reading something that is nonfiction. Um, honestly, I've had my head down for so long uh, that I have not had a chance to actually kick back in one of our own hammocks and you know, maybe have to do a little staycation. So I'm looking for a book that can take me away from all the work stress and everything else. Um, I can't say I have one right now, um, but I, I would encourage people to, um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are always looking for ways to improve, innovate like I am. And I think I've always found value in um, trying to jump step away from that. And so um, I would say I don't have a book on my list, but I would recommend uh, a gentleman in Moscow, which totally takes you to a whole different world. Um, and that spurs all sorts of great creativity when you do that. Yep. Completely agree. What is your number one recommended spot when you go to Thailand that you would tell other people like you have to go here? I would say um, if you're going to Southern Thailand and doing the more of the beach thing, take the extra step to go further from um, a lot of people go to Phuket, which is great, but get on a boat, travel a couple hours further. Uh, and there's like hundreds of islands to choose from. Um, honestly, pick any one of those. I would say Koh Lanta is great. Um, it has a little bit of everything, but um, just, yeah, go a little bit further, a little bit further away from the people um, and uh, allow yourself to kind of, um, have that experience of truly, you know, being remote. Yeah. That's awesome. What is the favorite piece of tech that makes you more efficient? Uh, I love my MacBook pro. <laughs> um, Same. yeah, things great. I take it everywhere. So, um, but everyone's got a, a computer these days. I would say, um, I don't know. I just lately it's been my, just my computer. Cause I've been staring at it for so long lately. Makes sense. Yeah. As is all of us. If you were to have a podcast, what would it be about and who would your first guest be? Um, it would be around relaxation and how to live a more values-oriented life. And my first guest would probably be Wim Hof, maybe? Ooh, that's a good one. I, I was just watching a, a, a series about Iceland. and <laughs> It reminded me of him doing his cold plunges. And yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's figured some things out. All right. Well, this was a great lightning round. Where can people find out more about you and Yellow Leaf Hammocks? So our website would be the first place we'd recommend, yellowleafhammocks.com, um, and also our Instagram, which is uh, yellowleafhammocks. Um, so yeah, looking forward to uh, yeah, seeing where things take us after this. But thank you so much for having me on. Um, it's always a pleasure to share our story and hopefully add value to others. Yep. Yeah, it was awesome. Thanks so much for coming on, Joe. And we will have to bring you back after all the Shark Tank craziness dies down and see how you're doing in six months to a year. So that'd be fun. Yeah, that'd be amazing, Stephanie. All right. Thanks, Joe. Have a great day. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.
Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.